So how is everybody doing tonight? Super. Super. Yeah. Yeah. See? Bueno. Okay. Let's pray for our text tonight. Lord, thank you for uh, Lord this chapter. And um, it's it's incredibly bitter. I mean, this is not an easy chapter. Um, but we know that you have just so many wonderful lessons that you want to teach us. Lord, so I pray that, Lord, as we work our way through it, that we would um, that we would come to it with just open and and receptive hearts, Lord, that you would sow seeds that would just bring forth beautiful fruit. And Lord, we just invite you to do that. Lord, we're we're ready to to hear from you, move in response to you, and to uh, to be changed, to be transformed into the image of you. So, Lord, we give you all of the glory, Lord, for that work, and we ask your blessing upon our time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, so remember last week we talked about the uh, the calling of a of a new man, a young man, and um, you know, kind of on the other side of that, the condemnation of an old man, and judgment is coming upon the house of Eli. We've been talking about it for weeks and weeks, and and here it is: a whirlwind of judgment in this chapter. Um, it's terrible, this chapter. Just just dreadful. Um, if, <laughs> if you were to, to take every uh, biblical calamity and compact it into one chapter, uh, it, would be, it would basically be this chapter. Uh, it, it's, it's almost humorous in how terrible and dark and devastating it is. But uh, it's, it's been a long time coming. You know, Eli has been warned uh, since chapter two um, that judgment's coming. You know, for the for his sons, for his neglect, you know, and for their shameful representation of the glory of God to the people. I mean, they were priests. It was it was this family that you would look to. To, to see God, to meet God, to come into fellowship with God, to build a relationship with God. They were the visual representation of God as his people, as his priests to the nation and really to the world. And they were, they were a shameful representation of God. And judgment was, was, was promised. But with that promise, there's this constant opportunity for repentance and, and with repentance, the assurance of restoration, right? And, and they, they left the opportunity at the door. And so this is what we see in chapter four. And we'll begin in the first three verses. And says, now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And the Israelites camped at Ebenezer, the Philistines at Aphek. And the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when 
the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? And let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, if you want to look at this from strictly you know, a, a military point of view, it makes sense that the Philistines would win. The Philistines were the only uh, you know, group in the region of Canaan that had entered into the Iron Age. So they had a, a definite you know, military advantage over everyone else that they faced. I mean, they had uh, armor, they had swords, they had shields, they had spears. Israel had none of that, right? Israel, uh, uh, they, they had rocks, right? And they had sticks. And if Israel was to win, it had to be a work of God. That was all Israel had, right? The enemy, they had all kinds of, of advanced weaponry. Israel had God. Um, so if they were going to be successful, it had to be a work of God because there is no natural explanation for their uh, triumph over such a formidable foe. Um, so they go out into the battle uh, to face the Philistines and they're completely defeated. 4,000 of them, they're wiped out, dead in the battlefield. And they look around and they start saying, why? Now that's good. Right? That's the good thing that they did there. Right? They're defeated. They experience a, a spiritual failure. And their response is to say, why? Why did this happen? And right, maybe you've been there. Maybe you go out to serve God or do something for the Lord and you embark on some ministerial endeavor. And it's just a complete failure. And, right, and, and, and you're looking around and you're like, wow, I planned this event. And there were supposed to be 100 people here. And three people are here. And, uh, and the guest speaker didn't show up and, and I got up there and I, I just clearly am so not anointed by God because I just look like a banana head every time I open my mouth and people just laugh and throw things and, and, and you could st stop and you could take stock and you could say, why, why did I fail? And that's what they did right. This is what they do wrong. They don't wait for an answer to that question. Right? They don't labor long in prayer asking why. They go, why did this happen? And then they go, I know, let's go get that ark thing. Right? That'll, that'll make everything just super. So, uh, but this is what we do, right? Something bad happens in our life, just generally, not ministerially, and we just go, why? Why has this happened? God, why me? Right? And, and, uh, and, and, and I know I ask that question all the time, and Sam talked about it a little bit on Sunday. You know, we just stop and we go, what, what was God thinking? And why has he allowed this thing to happen to me? And Israel stepped into Canaan in the book of Joshua to face a people that were greater in number and mightier in military power. And they won every single battle. And they built a land for themselves. And now they lost. And why? And any adversary uh, that they would stand to face at this point in history would be a formidable foe. It would be an unwinnable battle. Right? An advisor would come to Israel and they would say, you shouldn't do this. This is really a bad idea. You probably shouldn't go in there. You shouldn't try and take this land. But they had this mantra 
and it's it's our mantra. It's our verse, and, it, and it's Romans 8, verse 31. And you can write it down. You can turn there. Uh, but it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And, and that was... That was what they lived by, the simplicity of that single statement. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us, right? And so they went out to face this enemy. And if God is for us, no one can possibly stand against us, right? Because no one can stand against God. And we've discussed this in the past, but it bears repeating. And, and it's repeated three times in the New Testament, so it's probably important. And it's this doctrine of, of Balaam, right? And Balaam learned this lesson, and he lived to impart this truth to us. The three New Testament references to it, it starts in Second Peter. It's Second Peter 2.15. It continues in Jude. Jude's one chapter, but it's verse 11. So 2 Peter 2.15, Jude 1.11, and Revelation 2.14. Revelation 2.14. It's a very important biblical doctrine that's connected to a very bizarre uh, biblical story. And the story begins in Numbers chapter 22, continues through 25. I, I strongly encourage you all to read it when you get home. Uh, even if you are familiar with it, which no doubt many of you are, it is so unusual in every regard that it's worth rereading. Uh, Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Balaam is hired by Balak, right, king of Moab. And he's hired by Balak and he says, I want you to come to Moab where Israel is encamped and I want you to curse Israel. And Balaam, in the Bible, he, he's not a child of Israel. He's not pictured as a believer necessarily in the one true God. But he is called a prophet, which is odd and strange. And there's so many questions circling who he is and how he had the gifts that he had. Uh, because certainly he did communicate with God, and that's clear in this story. And, and, and he's promised all the wealth of Moab, right? A wealth beyond measure if you just come out and curse our enemy because they're an unstoppable force they have on their side the one true god who can stand against that and and so balaam he 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 goes out to curse these people balak says there it is, there they are do it and he opens up his mouth to speak a curse against the people and uh, every time he opens up his mouth and he tries numerous times a blessing comes forth. And Balak, you know, he's furious. And he's like, mm, I paid you all this money. I brought you all the way out here to curse these people. And you continually bless them. Right? It's infuriating. And, and we learn our first point and principle of the doctrine of Balaam. And it's this, what God has blessed cannot be cursed. Right? And that is, that is an incredible doctrine presented in the, in the Bible. And it's introduced with Balaam as a character. What God has blessed cannot be cursed. The Balak proceeds. He goes, I brought you all the way out here. You got to do something. Right? And, and Balaam uh, confessed that in heaven and upon earth, nothing can be done 
to the children of God Almighty because God's blessing is upon them. Who could possibly touch that blessing? Now, when I say blessing, I'm not talking about something that you can park in your garage. I'm not talking about something that you can buy in a store. Right? That's not what the blessing of God is, though you'll hear that in many churches today. When they talk about how you are a blessed people of God, it means that you should never have any troubles. You should always be, you know, uh, you know, just filthy rich and uh, always constantly healthy. This is a blessing that transcends the temporal. Right? This is something that that you can be in prison, like Paul, and you can be praising God and singing. Right? This is something uh, that, that no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you can say that if God is for me, who can possibly be against me? And you can have eternal victory. Right? They can't be taken away from you. And Balaam finally says, well, I, I confess, I can't curse these people. But he, he, he shrewdly concludes that maybe there's a possibility that while what God has blessed, we cannot curse, they can curse themselves. And so that's the conclusion that Balaam comes to, and that's the experiment that Balaam embarks upon. And he suggests to uh, Balak to send out the Moabite women into the Israelite camp. And the women from Moab mix with the men of Israel. They introduce idolatry and they cause this this sinful paganism to infect the camp. And uh, he says, and maybe if we do that, they will destroy themselves. Now, Israel, Israel was untouchable. They were indestructible until, until, until they destroyed themselves. And it's, it's an incredible thing to consider if you're applying it generally to all of our Christianity. And this is what we see in 1 Samuel clearly, right? They brought this, this curse upon themselves that the enemy could never possibly bring to them. There's something that we can do to ourselves that 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 we we look out into the world and we say, oh well the devil is trying to get me. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe take a second look. And we look out and we say, oh well everyone is against me. I'm not so sure about that one either. And there's something there there's a truth here. There's a reality here that what God is blessed it cannot be cursed, but we so often curse ourselves and we do it exactly the same way that Israel did it the the exact same way that they did it in numbers the way that they're doing it in first Samuel they they are they're heavy with sin and they're guilty before judgment and now it's come and it's at their door and 4000 men lay dead in the dust and they say what do we do and you look at this story and you think well surely this is rock bottom and praise God for it because it happened really early in the chapter. And that's a good thing, right? But 4,000 people are dead. That's a heavy consequence, but this is their rock bottom and rock bottom is an opportunity for repentance, right? 
But while it's an opportunity for repentance, it doesn't guarantee it. And you know that, and we see that constantly. You see so many people that are an inch away from epiphany. They're an inch away from realizing where they're at and what they've gone through and the consequences and the dire results of the curse that they brought upon themselves. And they're struggling in sin and, 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 and suffering the consequences. And you think, well, this is it. This is the moment. They're going to open up their eyes. They're going to see it. They're going to repent. There's going to be revival. It's going to be beautiful. And then instead of reaching for repentance, they... They go for an easy answer. And they conclude that the alternative to repentance is the ark. Right? They say, uh, they, all we need is this ark. This is how we're going to win the battle. We're going to go get the ark. Are you feeling depressed, defeated? Uh, and then this, then you, you, you've, you've lost the battle, whatever it is that you're going through. And, and you think, well, this is the answer. Well, I'll tell you, this is a great moment to stop and take stock of where you're at with the Lord, to, to open up his word, to come uh, to this moment, this Isaiah 59 moment, right? And you know Isaiah 59, it provides this glorious glimpse into this spot that we find ourselves in so often. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says uh, that the arm of the Lord isn't short to save. His ears aren't dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And, And it should bring you to a point where you think, well, maybe this has all happened for a reason. Maybe this is all from divine origin, um, and the purpose is for my repentance. And you see so many people here, and it breaks your heart. You know, I think of a a friend that I have in a story that I probably shouldn't share. Uh, this person who's who was in the youth group when I was the youth pastor, and and we would sit down and he would come to me and he'd pour out his heart and he'd cry. And he would just say, you know, this is, this is what I'm facing and this is what I'm going through. And, and I would say, okay, you, you should take this course. And, and Sam, he's, he's wonderful, right? He's, he's the best biblical counselor I've, I've, ever, I've ever seen in action. And I'm terrible. I, I do the exact opposite of what Sam does. I say, do this. You know, Sam, he kind of lays out your options and says, you know, this is, this is what the Bible says, and this is, this is what, you know, Jesus would do. <laughs> and then I say, you know, you, 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 need, you need to do this. And he would do that. And every time, and every time we met, and he would continually come to me, and he'd sit before me, and he would say, well, this is it. I need, I need God. But he wouldn't come to God. He would come to me. And he would sit before me and he would say, what do I do? And I would say, do this. And he would do that. And one decision after another. Until now, he's completely depraved. And I look at, at, this, at this young man, because he still is a young man, though weathered with sin. 
and, and I continually have Isaiah 59 before me. Well, God has a long arm to save such. He has an open ear to hear such. But why does he not save? Why does he not hear? Because you don't call. Because you're looking for other things, easier things. You're reaching for that other person. You're reaching for that ark, that thing that you're using to put distance between you and God when what you really need, what you desperately require is God and God alone. I'll tell you what what this ark often is in our day, in our community, in our world. It's church. You come to church and, and you say, this is the thing that I can reach for that'll take care of this, of the devastating results of my sin and the suffering that is nagging at my, at my soul day and night. I'll go there, I'll reach for that thing, and then everything else will be okay. But is that the answer? And we'll see, beginning in verse 4, the results of such a posture. Verse 4, so the people sent men to Shiloh, they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the community, all of Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. It came in, they thought, this is this is the answer. This is what we need, right? The, 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 they, they gave little thought to their sin. They gave less thought to actually going to God and God alone and seeking his, uh, seeking his favor. They, they thought, well, let's make the long trek to Shiloh. It's something like 23 miles away. So they moved the entire group up there. They grabbed the ark. Then they came back and they said, this is... This is where it's going to count. This is where we're going to make our stand. And, and we've got the ark. And that's, that's the essential component in this equation. Now, the ark was essentially a chest. right? And inside this chest was the, the law, the holy, righteous standard of God. right? That standard that man can never really meet right? The law of God that points at you, that points at me, that points at us and says, you are guilty, right? And if it was that all by itself, then who could possibly approach? But on top of the law is the lid. And there in between the cherubim is what's called the mercy seat. And that's, and that's where God promised to meet with his people to deal mercifully with them. And, and God was and is everywhere. But the ark was a uniquely wonderful place that God promised to meet with his people. And there's a picture there of who God is and how God works in the ark. It's this perfect blend of righteous law and merciful grace. There, the law and the mercy seat. And he said, I will meet you. And they said, great. God is going to meet us at the ark. And that's all we need, right? It's all we need, so let's go get the ark. And no, and I hate to simplify it so much, but in a word, no, that's not what you need. 
That's absolutely not what you need. That's not what I need. We don't need the ark. It should never be thought that by our close association with the meeting place of God, we have a close association with God. It's absolutely not true. And it's the greatest deception that has infiltrated the church of our era. We think that all we need is an association with a meeting place. You don't need that. I don't care if you have that. You'll go to hell with that. It's not what God has required. He doesn't care if you know the meeting place of God. He cares that you know God. No place can do for you what God requires. I don't care if it's a church. No object can do this for you. I don't care if it's the ark. They went to the meeting place of God, but they did not meet with God. And right, they came in full of uh, hypocrisy with this artificial, unholy worship, and they let out a shout, and it shakes the ground. And they come in, and they, and then you know, they're they're screaming worship songs. And they're going, "Oh, shout to the Lord! All the earth, let us sing!" And, and the ground's shaking, and everyone's excited, and it's a big, glorious party. And they're looking, "Oh my, how righteous and holy these fellows are!" And you might come to a church service and see the same folks there. And you would look at him and you say, oh, well, no one compared to his righteousness. Oh, brother is the highest of all saints. Oh, and then he leaves from the church and he walks right into hypocrisy. He walks right into adultery. He walks right into sin. And that's what many of us do. And the church has accepted that. The church calls that righteousness. Because as long as you come here one day a week, two day a week, and you raise a great shout and the ground shakes, then you've done your duty as a saint. And this chapter is for us. This chapter is for you. This chapter is for me. It confronts us with this blatant hypocrisy that God looks at as a joke. He says, doom is at your doorstep and you're shouting and praising as if you're talking to me. I don't know who you're praising, but it's certainly not me. And they have the ark. They think, well, what else do we need? And they probably need God. They probably need to come to him honestly. They probably need to come to him in humility and repent of their hypocrisy. And here's the beautiful thing. They had at their disposal, at their fingertips, the ark of God. The place where God promised to deal with them mercifully graciously they were an inch away from what they needed but they thought they already had it they thought well this is all we need to go out to battle and ensure victory and and they were and they were deadly wrong and the consequences will be severe and we'll begin to read about them in verse 6 Continuing, it says, hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. 
A god has come into the camp. They said, we're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. And woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? There are gods, uh, or they are the gods that struck down the Egyptians when all kinds of plagues in the desert. And, and be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And I love this passage. This, this passage should be credited to Israel. But it's credited to their enemies. It's credited to heathens. The heathens in this passage had more faith in the God of Israel than the Israelites had in their own God. They knew that all that was necessary was this God, this God that had done all these great things in the past, not, not God's stuff, right? They said the God is in the camp. Right, The people are roaring because their God has come. And, and th- this verse proves a wonderful thing about just, a, just about every single person that you meet in the world. It, it depicts the nagging fear that lingers in the back of every unbeliever's mind. Right? And this nagging fear bursts to the surface at funerals when unbelievers say things like, I wonder if this is all that there really is. I wonder if there's anything beyond this life or what's next. You could find it when when unbelievers are in trouble and uh, they either accept or ask for your prayer. It's the strangest thing. Never have I met an unbeliever. I don't care how much of an unbeliever they are. When they're in absolute crisis, the circumstances are devastating and drastic, where when I said, I'll pray for you, they said, ah, I don't believe in that God. I'm an unbeliever. There's a nagging question that lingers in the back of all our minds. It draws me to the conclusion that no one is really an unbeliever. Some people are just trying very hard to be. There's always an awareness of something more. There's always an awareness of something greater. And there's the constant knowledge that if you're on the wrong end of that something that is out there, then the consequences will be devastating. And they believed in this God. And now they were faced with them. And they said, we're marching into our doom. Be strong and fight. And so they do just that in verse 10. The Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What God has blessed cannot be cursed, but we can curse ourselves. And that's exactly what happened. Right? They were warned in chapter 2. They, uh, the warning was repeated in chapter 3. A small battle at the beginning of the chapter. They lost 4,000 people died. An opportunity to repent and return to God. And yet, uh, while they had this opportunity for an epiphany, they let it slip through their grasp. They reached for an easy answer in the ark. 
And you can look at this almost as, uh, as an attempt to manipulate God. Right? They, they thought, well, uh, God really likes this ark. And as long as we have this ark, right, God is going to give us the victory. Because God's not going to let his ark get taken. I mean, let's be real about this. We go into battle. God has to give us the victory as long as we have this thing. But uh, God holds very loosely, you know, to objects. You look at how many times the temple was wiped out. You look at how many churches have closed their doors. Right? He cares about people. He cares about our character and our connection uh, to him. All of all this other stuff is inconsequential. Right? And he will not allow himself to be manipulated into into fighting our battles for them. And and it's and it's a subtle point, but it's it's certainly there. Because we do this quite often. You know, if we're in sin and, and, and we still were going out to do some sort of ministry, whatever it might be, and you think, well, well, God has to make this ministry successful because, well, he wants to bless his ministry, right? And, and, I, and I would hear this uh, from people in Bible college. We'd go out on evangelistic mission trips and we'd be going out to do street evangelism and, and you see two people get into a fight and, and they go at each other and it's just vicious and nasty and gnarly and then they go out to share the Lord and, and they have this attitude, well, you know what, I'm going to go share the Lord and God's going to bless it because God cares about that person and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force him to use me as an instrument of his glory. And Israel would go out and they would think, well, you know, I could do this and I have the, the ark and I know God loves this ark and so I'm going to force God to bless me. Well, God's not going to be manipulated to bless anybody, right? And God can and will leave you completely exposed in that moment because there is no substitution and there is no manipulation that will take the place of repentance and reconciliation, no substitution for that. God's not going to accept anything else. All right, so 30,000 men die in a single battle to prove this point. And, and, if, you're, and if you're a nerd, like I'm a nerd, uh, then, then you'll be tantalized by this delightful truth that in the 1970s, a five-line inscription was found on a grain silo in this region of Canaan. And the characters on this five-line inscription were uh, ancient Philistine. And the ancient Philistine characters depicted this very event. They talked about this decisive victory over Israel, about the capturing of the Ark of the Lord, and even mentioned uh, Hophni, the priest, by name. It's the earliest uh, artifact validating a biblical event that has ever been Discovered, And we're going to talk about some more of those later because one of my favorites is coming up. So uh, that's, the, that's the passing nerdy truth of the day. But the, battle is, but the battle is lost and the ark is captured. Eli's sons are dead. But here's, here's the, the sad thing, right? Because I know this, is, this has just been terrible, but it's just getting started. Right, The worst is still yet to come. And that begins in verse 12. And we're going to read it through to the end. That same day, right, the same day, Benjaminite ran down from the battle line, went to Shiloh, 
and his clothes torn, dust on his head, because he was you know, mourning. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town, he told what had happened and the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? And the man hurried over to Eli when he was, uh, or who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, what happened, my son? And the man who had, or who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, uh, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. And, for he was an old man and heavy, and he led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant near the time of delivery when she heard the news the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law, her husband, uh, dead. And she went into labor. She gave birth but was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the woman attending her said, don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention, pay any attention. And she named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because of uh, the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So first, I'll lay this all out for you in a, in a way that we can all metabolize. So first, 4,000 people die. Then 30,000 people die. Hophni and Phinehas die. The ark is captured. Eli hears the news. He falls out of his chair. When he falls out of his chair, he breaks his neck. When he breaks his neck, he also dies. And as a side note... What a legacy the Bible leaves about Eli. Do you know the three things that the Bible wants you to remember about Eli? Right? He was old, he was blind, and he was fat. Those are the three things that it says about Eli as it's, as it's moving on. It's like, well, we're done with this guy, but you should remember he was old, he was blind, and he was fat. And, and I, this is very much so literal, but there's a symbolic subtext to this. Right? I mean, he was, he was old. He was weary of dealing with the evils of the next generation. He was old and he was tired. So he wasn't going to deal with it. He was dismissive towards it. He was blind, right? Blind to the consequences of his neglect, right? He was blind to the sin that had taken hold of his family. And the, he was blind to the shame that it was bringing to God. And last, he was fat, Right? He was fat and lazy. He was so fat and so lazy that he wouldn't take the necessary action when given the opportunity to repent and get right. right? And so it's a subtle warning, but it's a warning for all of us to remember that such complacency and spiritual obesity lead to spiritual death. And so Eli hits the ground dead and his daughter-in-law goes into labor right and uh, i know what you're thinking 
right? When, when you heard that text, you thought, well, she's pregnant near the time of delivery. She goes into labor and you're thinking, this is about to all turn around, right? Because a baby's going to be born and everybody loves the birth of a baby, right? And, and people that don't even like talking to me posted on my Facebook page when the baby was born. <laughs> like, hey, there's a reason for me to like you. <laughs> because the baby, because just the baby, they don't like me, but the baby, everybody loves a baby, right? So you hear that and you go, this is, this is when it's all gonna turn around, good things are happening, but no, right? A baby that is emblematic, there is nothing, there's no greater picture than a new beginning and a fresh start. And that's what's gonna be ushered into Israel. No, no, not, not, not that. A long delivery as she's delivering the baby, her life begins to ebb away. The attending lady encourages her, you've just given birth to a baby boy. And she doesn't say a thing, right? With her last dying breath, she, she names the baby Ichabod which just means no glory. If you look it up in Hebrew, that's it. It's just no glory, Ichabod. What a terrible name. No, I mean, I can't imagine the life that that child must have lived with a name like that. He goes to school and a boy comes up to him. He says, my name's Tom, what's your name? And he's like, Ichabod. And the kid goes, uh, no glory. Why did your mom name you that? He goes, I don't know, she's dead. And then he goes, why does your... Why'd your dad name you that? He goes, I don't know. He's dead. My grandpa died the same day, and so did 40,000 other people. <laughs> it's nice meeting you. It's terrible. This, is whole, this whole thing is just so bad. Right? And, and the mom, she, just, she, she puts the cherry on top of this total tragedy with this name Ichabod. She says, there's no glory. It's all over. We're done this is the end. And she's packing it up for Israel with this name. She goes, it was a good run. We did a lot of good stuff, but it's all over. This is completely and utterly hopeless. And, and my, old, uh, my old senior pastor, um, a little, little while before he retired, it was a few weeks, maybe a month before he retired, um, he, he took the pulpit, he opened up to first Samuel chapter four, and he read the entire chapter without really any sense of context that I could remember. He just got up there and read this chapter, this terrible, depressing chapter. And, and then he closed, he closed his Bible and he said, would to God that I could inscribe the word Ichabod on the doorposts of this church because the spirit of God has left this place and the glory is gone. And the truth of that statement absolutely horrified us as, as a congregation. And we believed it. It was hard to deny that in the carnality and complacency of that small Christian body. It was as if one day God got up from the pew that he had been occupying for, for years and walked right down the center aisle and out the doors without anybody taking notice of him. And no one noticed until everything had fallen apart, just like Israel.
in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And it was on the lips of a dying mother, and it was on the lips of a retiring senior pastor. And and here's the thing, as I, as I thought about that, because that's, I'll be honest with you, that's my, that's my reference point for 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's what I think of every time I read this chapter, is these haunting words that that man said before he stepped down from the pulpit and left the ministry entirely. And today, as I thought about it, and today as I worked on this message, I, I began to think, well, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Right? Such a moment can easily turn uh, from Ichabod to Epiphany. Right? It can. That It was a terrible thing that he did, that that senior pastor did that day. And, and I realize it now that the building is just a building and a building can be, can be Ichabod, right? The glory can be gone from a place. And I'm sure you've been to churches where you feel the same exact way, where you can easily write Ichabod upon that church and upon that place because the glory is gone from that place. But when you see that, when you experience that, it should serve as a great reminder to you. It should serve as a great reminder to me that cold walls were never meant to occupy the glory of God. All right. The glory of God was always meant to dwell in living hearts, not dead buildings. And, and, and for us to, to see this and, and to be able to say this should bring us back to a place of, of Isaiah 59, where we see that, where we see the, the, a people or a place in verse 2, where they're in sin and, and God is separated because of that sin. And then you could say, well, this, this is an opportunity for Isaiah 59, verse 1, right? Because I know God. And I know he's got a long arm to save. I know, I know he's got big, you know, Dumbo ears that are ready to hear, right? So if you if you call out, he won't leave you, Ichabod. He won't leave you empty and hollow. He will hear, and he will restore what has been squandered. And that's exactly what we're going to begin to see uh, starting next week. We're going to move. We're going to move from this place where the book has been closed and all is lost and it's completely hopeless to repentance and revival. We're going to move to this place of Isaiah 59 where we see what God does when we come to him and lay it all at his feet and say, God, here I am. I'm coming to you and I'm confessing everything everything I, I have and have been harboring and I'm leaving it at your feet. And we're going to see a great God do great things through his simple people. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, and I thank you for the truths that you have in this chapter. And it's just such a depressing chapter. It's, I mean, it ends without any sort of hope. And, and, and that's true for them, and, I, and it's true for us. 
if we're if we're putting our hope in things that can be removed, like an ark, like a church, like a friend. And Lord, heaven forbid we should have anything as a sub or a substitution for you, for the essential relationship that we need with you. Lord, heaven forbid we should try and use any device to manipulate manipulate you, to get you to work on our side, when all you really want to do is work on our side. And so often we're just, we're old and tired, and we're blind to our own sin, and, and we're just fat and lazy, and we don't want to deal with it. I pray, God, that you would cause us to deal with it because it's not as if there's some great work that we have to embark on. It's simple repentance that we would just come before you and confess and we can meet with you directly. It doesn't matter where we're at. It doesn't matter what we have and all the glory will come flooding back with you because all the glory belongs to you. Lord, and there'll be new life revival in our hearts. And Lord, that's what we desire. Lord, fill us, God, and use us. Lord, speak to us, renew us. And Lord, meet us in this place. And God, I praise you. I trust all this into, into your hands and ask, you, Lord, your blessing upon these people. I pray, God, that you'd Lord, that you'd continue to speak to their hearts, Lord, as you've spoken to mine, and Lord, redeem something from this from this e evening where we've dealt with this tough chapter in Scripture. And I trust this to your hands in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.